So frankly, Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, today's sermon text, is a PTSD trigger for me. I was about 24, a good two to three years into seminary and ministry, and it was my first time at bat in big church. I had prepped and studied and studied and prepped. I had my notes printed out in landscape form. So the outline was on the left with every word written out on the right in case I got really lost. All my family was there. Some friends from college were there. Some friends from seminary were there. Even a few professors were there. Could have been the whole world as far as I was concerned. I had thought through every single detail of the entire sermon. I had shined my shoes. I bought a new tie. I I wasn't just ready for my public debut. I was like Wakefield ready. (laughs) Which is to say I was prepared into paralysis. Turns out I was over-ready, overcooked, crispy, and charred. Because as I got into the text for the morning, which started with Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, I began to read those first two verses with the stupid confidence of, uh, of clueless youth. I jumped in. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, I remember gesticulating like, that's y'all. Called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, I get to the end of verse 13. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I put my Bible down. I look up for my Bible. And honestly, something in me just absolutely snapped. (laughs) And all I remember from that entire first sermon uh, was that moment of just experiencing suddenly a form of total dread I had never experienced. In that moment, I was the one without hope and without God in the world. Because the overwhelming majority of these people who were there that day, they were actually listening attentively. (laughs) And they were considerably older and smarter and much wiser. And after I read those first few verses there, they were much to my surprise and dread. They were actually listening very closely. And that entire moment hinged on me saying something meaningful and helpful. (laughs) I remember Marv Johnson, PhD, sitting toward the front, looking at me as if I had something helpful to say. And I was in this strange dreamlike moment where, you know, sort of frozen in time, and I was looking from above at myself, realizing that I was totally flailing in front of a crowd of people who needed and expected and deserved. Marv was looking at me, happy to hear, and I realized in that moment, I had nothing helpful. I had 45 minutes of material, and I kid you not, God is my witness. 
the whole thing lasted eight minutes. <laughs> Don't start clapping, I'll go longer. <laughs> I am no longer 24. I don't remember a single word from that first sermon other than the scripture passage, and I hope no one else uh, remembered either. And you will not, by the way, find a copy of that recording at Calvary Church in Mundelein because they have all been mercifully destroyed. (laughs) Frankly, it was one of the most alienating and isolating moments of my entire life up to that point. I felt miserably on display and vulnerable in a way that I swore I would never experience again. After that eight minutes of misery were over that we had all experienced, I remember that I walked down the aisle of shame right into the, right into the pastor's office. I ripped off the microphone. I threw it into the drawer, drawer where it belonged, and I said to the pastor and to my wife, never again. That was miserable. I bet if I asked you to think of times in your life where you've experienced those, those moments and those feelings of extreme isolation or loneliness or, 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 or vulnerability and, and being on display, whether it's something as relatively benign as public speaking or something far more serious, like the feelings of, of rejection from a loved one that you know is supposed to care for you. If I asked you to think of those kinds of moments and those kinds of feelings, you would have, every single one of us, no problem remembering how it felt. Isolation and loneliness and rejection and and alienation, that separation, what Paul describes in verse 13 here as being far off, This separation from the comfort and the safety that we all need, it comes in many forms in our lives. It can happen because of countless conceivable reasons or situations. It can happen because you're short or you're tall, you're little, you're big, you're black, you're white, you're rich, you're poor. It can happen because of outright rejection in very clear and and difficult and hurtful ways from others. It can happen because of something you've said or done, because of something someone else has said and done. It can be because of nothing in particular. It can happen because you're in first grade at a brand new school in Southern California because you just moved from East Tennessee and you have a slight accent and your ears stick out a little. And you don't cuss. And you don't want to play the let's get married game because you're a prude, whatever that is. While these feelings of of isolation and and loneliness all bring up experiences we'd like to forget, interestingly, here in our passage today, Paul tells us twice in the first two verses that we should actually remember what isolation felt like because of how it reminds us of what we really have in Jesus. Listen again to Ephesians, the second chapter. Just verses 11 and 12. We'll read through it quickly once and then we'll jump back in. Listen for how Paul reminds us to remember. To remember the isolation and the the alienation of our pre-Jesus life. It says this, verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning you who were born non-Jews, called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of problem, 
of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Apparently there's something fruitful here about remembering the isolation and the alienation of our pre-Christ life that Paul wants us to see in these verses. So jump back in in verse one, uh, I'm sorry, verse 11, first word, therefore. Now, if you've been with us a while, you've heard me say this kind of thing. When you've seen therefore, you have to see what it's there for. So you got to pay attention to why it's there. And it's there for telling us from the immediately preceding context that we as the church, that, that the church is being made into a new creation of God for his purpose of making known his goodness and his glory. So this therefore here uh, is Paul picking back up this theme of the church that God's building. It's God's new thing that he is putting together to make known his goodness and his glory. He said it a number of times and a number of ways up to this point. In Ephesians 1, and 23, Paul spoke about how we as the church are called to be Christ's body, like the way he works in the world in practical ways. We're supposed to do that by filling the world with the fullness that we have from him. In Ephesians 2.10, in the immediately preceding verse to our passage here, Paul says that we, the church, are God's workmanship, God's doing, his making, his thing, and that we are being made by him into this whole new thing for his purposes. So this therefore here is Paul picking this up again and saying, since you are being built into this new thing that God is making through his spirit, that is his chosen vehicle to communicate his goodness and glory into the world, then it is important to keep reading, therefore, to remember, first of the two times, he says, to remember that at one time, once you Gentiles in the flesh, you who were born non-Jews, you were called the uncircumcision, that's in quotes in the ESV here, by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, now there's a, this sign for the Jews, a sign of being part of the Jews, part of God's people, his chosen people who were set apart for God's purposes of communicating his goodness and glory. One of the signs was being circumcised. So I'd like for you all to look on screen at this diagram. Just kidding. <laughs> we're just going to assume everybody here knows what we're talking about. So as a symbol, as a sign of cutting off the old you and having a new heart that's made new by God and having dedicated yourself to God's purposes, right? Like that's that new thing that God's doing. Every male Jew was circumcised. And that meant that uh, the Jews, knowing this, this sign was so important for them to be set apart for God's purposes, the Jews considered uncircumcised Gentiles, the non-Jews, not only unclean, like ceremonially unclean, but also unworthy. And they began to read into it meanings like unworthy and basically unable for non-Jews to be a part of God's family. This is part of how the Jews went wrong in the Old Testament. Not all of them, but many of them. So this wasn't just like kid playground teasing, like nanny, nanny, boo, boo, you're a part of the uncircumcision. Not that kind of thing. This was, this was outright like condemnation of those outside of their own circumcision club. And so they were taking God's good purposes for them and sort of maligning them and perverting them as a way to keep out those that they wanted to, to keep out there. 
And so Paul explains further what this alienation meant and, and looked like by noting five things here that the Gentiles didn't have. Look at verse 12. He says, remember that you were at that time, five things here, number one, you were separated from Christ, meaning no expectation of a savior from sin, separated from him. You were, number two, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning they were excluded from the privileges of, of citizenship as part of God's people. Number uh, three, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, meaning they had no share in God's promise to save them. And then finally, number, numbers four and five are, are sort of meant to be together as a summary statement of the whole thing there. They were, at one time, without hope, having no hope, and without God in the world. It's sort of a summary statement of the pitiful state that they were in apart from God. So Paul's saying here, he's reminding them, don't forget that you once were separated from Christ. You were excluded from Israel. You were foreigners to the promises of God. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. Now, why does, why does Paul remind them here to remember their pre-Christ past? To remember that alienation and, and isolation. What could be so helpful about remembering the former pain of the isolation and rejection before they came to be a part of God's people? Look at verse 13, first two words. He says, but now, just like last week in verse 4, where Paul makes clear this distinction between B.C. and A.D., before Christ in the year of our Lord, when he said, but God, in verse 4, here he says, but now, in contrast to who you were when you were without hope and without God in the world, he says, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, which is Paul's shorthand for everything you need to stand righteous before God that you have because of Jesus, in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off, he sort of says it here like a, like a name or like a title for, for who they once were, for who we once were before Jesus. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, says you've been brought near. It sort of sounds to me, by the way, like kind of one of those Indian names where you name the person based on some journey in their life, right? Like, uh, you who are once far, one, were once far off are now, you know, have been brought near. It, it, it's like a new name for you here. <laughs> and how did this happen? The only way it can. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the sacrifice of a perfect Savior. So, if you've been brought near by the blood of Christ, Paul has sort of divided your personal history here into B.C. and A.D., making clear the understanding that the fullness of who you are now, A.D., means remembering who you once were, B.C. This is important to understand what you actually have now in contrast to what you didn't then. And remembering is how this happens. Now here's something cool I haven't told you yet. In the Bible, 
The word remember isn't just some mental exercise to recall facts and information, as we like to think about the word remembering. It's actually a very active word. Remembering in the Bible is typically, especially when it's talking about God remembering, it's a call to action based on the things being remembered. At the end of Genesis 7, where it's been speaking of the thoroughgoing destruction of the world because of the flood, it says that God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. The very first verse, right after that chapter 7, in chapter 8, 1 of Genesis, says, but God remembered Noah. And then, as you know, God kept Noah and his family and the animals safe in a boat that Hebrews eleven seven calls an ark of salvation. But God remembered Noah. In Genesis 19, right after God had destroyed the cities of God, Sodom and Gomorrah, when, Abram, when Abraham went out early the next morning to sort of survey the damage, he looked on it in despair. It says in the next verse, so it was that God remembered Abraham, meaning the destruction that had happened wasn't something that included Abraham and that he had been saved. God had acted to save Abraham and his family from judgment. So it was that God remembered Abraham and took him from that judgment. In Genesis 30, after Rachel had struggled for years with, with barrenness, and bitterness that she considered God's rejection and judgment against her. Verse 22 and 3 in Genesis 30 say, Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. In Exodus 2, after the people of God in slavery had been, had been groaning to God and, and crying out for help. It says in Exodus 2, verses 22, uh, 23 through 5, it says, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob, and then he used Moses to lead the people out of slavery and into the promised land. Friends, when God remembers, it isn't, it isn't a call to mind for him as if he'd forgotten. Because, parenthetically, he's God. It is to act on behalf of his people. And it's similar with us, except that unlike God, <laughs> we need to remember what we have, and what God has done because we constantly forget. We constantly forget. So when we remember our need and God's provision, not only is it to call to mind what we have and what God has done, it is also that, like God remembering, we can act on his behalf as his people in accordance with the calling we have as the church that is being made into this, this new thing that God is doing 
through people who have his spirit. Who have this high calling of understanding what it means to have everything you'll ever need to stand righteous before Jesus and to remember that and for that truth to be the thing out of which you live and you talk and you relate to others and from which you work. It is that understanding of who you are and what you have that you remember that motivates that calling to be who God has made you to be. We remember so we can act like we know what we've been given by God. Like we know, Ephesians 1, 3, that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. Paul says earlier in Ephesians that we are to remember that in Christ Jesus, we have riches beyond measure, an inheritance that goes beyond our wildest imagination, and that God has directed toward us, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power that makes up for our not great power. He tells us we've been raised up with Jesus, seated with him. He says we are God's new creation called the church whose purpose is to communicate his goodness and glory. Paul is saying, don't ever forget who you were so that you can act based on who you really are and what you really have. Friends, when we remember, as Paul has instructed us here in Ephesians 2, uh, 11 and 13, we're, we're calling to mind who we were without Jesus so that we can live more fully from who we are now in Jesus. This is so important because so many of us have heard the good news for so long that we have forgotten that, that if we have the blood of Christ to cleanse us, we need not fear the alienation and the isolation and the separation that are a result of our sin and our failure. And what this means is a really precious and life-giving truth for the believer in Jesus. What it means, what it means is that when the evil one shames you with your sin, it means you can point to Jesus. It means when the feelings of, of isolation and rejection from our past continue to crop up time and time again, it means you can point to Jesus. It means when the voices in our heads point to our failures, we can point to Jesus. So to whom are you pointing when this broken world and your own sin and the sin of others against you when those things conspire to condemn you, where are you pointing? I hope it's Jesus. Because without him, you have no hope. You have no blood that works to cleanse you from your sin. 
And you absolutely will fail to please the God who alone deserves and demands your perfect obedience. So friends, come at the invitation of Jesus whose perfect sinless life stands to fill in the gaps of your imperfect, whose, whose sacrifice in the cross works to be the sacrifice that you deserved so that the wrath that is justifiably ours went on him instead. Come at the invitation of that Jesus to remember who you were without him so that you can live as you are with him. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we trust in so many things that fall short of what you deserve. And so we give ourselves anew in the quiet of this moment to who you say we are to the truth that you communicate to us in your word, to the hope that we can have in the person of your son, Jesus, in the witness of your Holy Spirit that gives us soft hearts that want to repent. Father, thank you for your purposes that account for how we've maligned our lives and our relationships and our giftedness with our purposes. We ask, Lord, that you continue to uh, teach us so that we would trust you further. Uh, teach us what the gospel is, what the good news really means for us um, so that we could live in ways that communicate your goodness and glory and experience the joy of being a part of the amazing work that you're doing to bring people to yourself. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.